Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, we've been talking about it for the last several years about what appears to be a growing um, regulatory oversight, a heavier hand on the part of the U.S. regulators and U.S. lawmakers against big tech here. Historically, they've taken a very light touch, but uh, seems in recent years a little bit more heavier hand. Let's check in on that story. Jen Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Jen, again, it seems like, you know, there's definitely been a heavier hand here by a lot of these regulators. And right now they're looking at the apps. I'm thinking about the App Store, the Google App Store, the Apple App Store. Uh, that's a big revenue source for those companies. What's Congress looking at? You know, it's funny. It We have been talking about this for a couple of years, Paul, and it seemed like it was really all about Google and Facebook in the beginning. And then suddenly, you know, there was a lot of focus on Apple and Google and their app stores and their, their walled garden, so to speak, for their mobile phones. What this um, Open Apps Market Act is looking to do is take away some of the prohibitions and restrictions that Apple and Google utilizes with app developers. So, in other words, you can only, a user can only download an app from the official app store of that mobile system. Uh, you have to use the payment systems. Uh, if you buy an app or you make an in-app purchase, you have to use the Google or Apple payment system. And also, there may be some use of the data of rivals to support or promote or develop their own products that are also within their own app stores. So what Congress is trying to do is break that down and force competition that would lower the rates, which are 30% and 15% that Google and Apple and Apple charge app developers. And seemingly that would bring the price down for users of apps. Do these kind of um, uh, regulations also govern physical stores? For example, if I opened a chain of drug stores across the U.S., would I have to allow certain products sold in my drugstore and have um, the margins that I charge regulated and need to allow certain people access to my data, et cetera? This particular regulation would not because it defines covered companies. And really, it's defined so specifically that it really only means Apple and Google <laughs> within this context. But you know, what you raise is a really good point because you ask why these companies particularly when we don't regulate other industries in that in this manner. And we haven't really regulated other industries in this manner because government hasn't wanted to intrude on business models and business strategies and the way companies operate in the free market. And so I think for that reason, you know, I do think that there will be some pushback. Well, there's a lot of momentum here, right, to, to reform antitrust laws and regulate gatekeeper uh, platforms. I do think there will be some pushback. And if something gets enacted, I would see it as a watered-down version of what we're looking at here. Yeah, when I first read about this, it seemed like a solution in search of a problem. I, is there widespread pushback from consumers that apps are too expensive? You know, there really isn't, and, but consumers just may not understand the framework. And it, that that's really what some of the competitors are arguing, like Spotify or Match or Epic Games that, that really have problems with these prohibitions of these companies. They're arguing that consumers just don't really know that they're paying more because Apple and Google charge the, the developers so much more, and that's passed down to consumers. But it, it really, you raise such a good question because it's not really something, of all the things that Congress could be doing and regulating and legislating, it isn't really something that there's been a big consumer uproar over. 
Um, there are a lot of lawsuits, and, and there are other bills in the House and in Senate that would seek to do the same kind of thing, in particular a lot of litigation right now against both Google and Apple, but it is mostly brought by companies and not by people. Uh, there are some, I should say, there, there is a class action by consumers, but I think the broader push here in the litigation is by developers and also by, by states. Yeah, those are three apps that I don't use. Um, <laughs> but I can understand also that Congress does want to try and just limit the powers of these gigantic uh, tech companies because they're so big and have such a wide uh, reach. Right, that's right. And I think, you know, if you think about what the push is, the bipartisan push here, it's why I tend to think these versions of the bills we're seeing today aren't the ones that will get enacted if something gets enacted. Because you have Democrats, particularly the progressive wing on one side, that are really about just curbing dominance and curbing monopoly power. A lot of the Republicans, not all, but a lot of the Republicans are more concerned about what they view as censorship, that the power of these companies has led to censorship of conservative viewpoints. And they're more interested in regulating to prevent that kind of conduct. And I think because you have bipartisan interests, but coming from two different perspectives, you may see some trouble when it comes to trying to get the 60 votes you need in the Senate to enact any of this. All right, Jen, great having you on, and I hope we can get you back because... You're very good at what you do. Jennifer Ree is a senior litigation analyst for us out of Bloomberg Intelligence talking about the latest attempts to um, reduce the power of Apple and Google and really about the lawsuits that have been brought by a number of companies in one class action lawsuit um, by consumers as well to try and regulate the app stores um, and the businesses in general. Well, you know, speaking for myself, what one of the uh, silver linings of this pandemic is just to heighten my appreciation for the biotech industry, for the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, coming up with multiple vaccines in record time and getting them uh, distributed uh, as they have has just been extraordinary. So just amazing work being done in the biotech uh, industry. And a lot of those investors know very well uh, kind of what's getting done. Let's check in with one of those companies, Florian Brand, CEO and co-founder of a biotech company, a Thai based uh, in Germany. The symbol NASDAQ symbol is ATAI. If you've got a terminal in front of you, they're up about 3% today. They recently reported some, uh, some results. Uh, Florian, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about your company. What is a Thai focusing on right now? Sure, and thanks for having us um, today on the show. Um, so, Atai is a clinical stage um, biopharma company, so basically a drug development company, um, developing innovative novel treatments for mental health disorders. And you mentioned COVID, um, and we experienced that during COVID, those numbers of people suffering from mental health indications have unfortunately really um, skyrocketed. So, we're in this for developing novel um, innovative treatments um, and also look at previously stigmatized compounds such as psychedelic compounds to really um, improve the current um, existing standard of care to um, yeah make it, make patients that suffer from mental health disorders and globally that's roughly a billion and make them uh, make them more 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 effective uh, develop more effective options for them um, so that they um, can can get better treatments so when you talk I mean uh there has been for decades talk about using psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD to treat various issues um, from mental health issues to, to alcoholism. What are you talking about specifically? 
Um, so we're, among others, are also looking at, um, at, at psilocybin, um, but more broadly also at DMT and, and other molecules that are considered psychedelics, also at, a, at an enantiomer of, of ketamine. Um, so indeed, to your point, they have been well-researched over the last decades, starting as early as in the 50s and 60s, um, where they actually already showed um, interesting and, and very compelling, promising um, signals that they're very relevant um, drugs uh, treating psychiatric diseases, but then mainly due to political reasons, that research slowed down due to you know, the declaration of Nixon's war on drugs. And then most recently, um, with very promising studies out of John Hopkins in Baltimore and Imperial College in London, there's more and more kind of a spotlight in the academic world showing really the promise of those compounds. And then around around that time, 2016, 2017, that's also when we decided to, to start a tie to really put more money in rigorously researching those compounds um, to really demonstrate that they are safe and efficacious for mental health disorders or to treat mental health disorders. Yeah, Florian, it seems to me, you know, we haven't heard much about psychedelics really since arguably the 60s and maybe the 70s. So what's what has been the whole psychedelic... Speak for yourself. Yeah, exactly right. I, I, I will. I, I, I was in college in the 90s, and I heard a lot about them then. Yeah. So what has been the <laughs> use case for psychedelics historically, and, and kind of how are you perhaps repurposing that? Um, yeah, so indeed, I mean, in some countries, they have been actually legal for medical use. Um, again, I think that the, the backlash was really driven by political motives. I mean, there's got this anti-hippie movement, uh, kind of Timothy Leary going a little bit too, too, uh, uh, a little bit overboard with kind of um, advocating that's kind of the panacea and everyone should take it. We're taking a very scientific approach here and demonstrating that they're given in the right setting settings and an inpatient treatment supervised by a therapist, they can be truly um, helping people suffering from, from these diseases. And I think that's important to emphasize that we really rigorously researching those in modern, with modern standards, and that's why we're um, running various clinical trials at different stages um, to basically generate the data for the FDA and also later on payers to make those therapies reimbursable. It's, so, uh, again, we're, we're uh, not in this for recreational use and overhyping this. No. Uh, really developing here medical, medical well, uh, compounds. It's funny that we vilify um, psychedelics, but... Um, we have no problem prescribing way too much OxyContin, right? And I wonder if right. um, you can use these, especially to treat addiction. I think that was one of the bright spots that I uh, remember reading a lot about. Absolutely. So um, I mean, the opioid crisis is especially, especially relevant for, for the US, and we see from year to year also the, the death toll of, of opioid use disorder rising, unfortunately. And we are developing one very interesting compound called ibogaine, that has historically be, be, uh, has been used in kind of ritualistic settings from kind of indigenous people, um, but also have been administered in clinical um, settings um, uh, in, for, for patients in Latin America and has shown, as back then, based on case studies, showed, shown great potential. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence um, that this can be really uh, an interesting therapy for people really um, suffering from addiction. All right, Florian Brand, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. Florian Brand, he's the CEO and co-founder of uh, biopharmaceutical company Atai, symbol A-T-A-I, based in Germany. They are focusing on the psychedelic side of the market and stocks up about 3% today. Uh, they went public at 15. It's trading just a little bit above $14 a share, up 3%. They reported some uh, re financial results just recently, so good to get his thoughts on that market. 
Looking at the 10-year uh, Treasury, 1.238%. Where does a good fixed income investor go to get return? Let's go to R.J. Gallo and ask that question. He's a senior portfolio manager, head of the municipal bond group at Federated Hermes, uh, based in Pittsburgh. They had a couple shekels under management. Let's call it total assets under management, $645 billion. Uh, R.J., thanks so much for joining us here. Um, you know, tax-exempt or taxable where do I go for yield today? How much risk should I be taking? Well, the yield can be hard to come by, uh, certainly in a historic sense. <laughs> uh, yields are, are basically at record lows in muni. Spreads have tightened massively. Both taxable and tax-exempt markets thematically have seen low-quality credit massively outperform. Uh, and that um, is something that, that I, I think a number of active managers, certainly we felt, was apt to happen as the, um, at least the improvement in the pandemic picture, which recently has been complicated by the Delta variant. But nevertheless, the economic reopening, uh, a, a strong tailwind to the returns to credit, whether it be in tax-exempt or taxable bond markets. Looking forward, given the yield moves, given that spreads have compressed, uh, there seems to be a little pause in that. Over the last month or so, high-yield corporates, for example, have uh, started printing uh, somewhat weaker returns. Uh, in the muni space, uh, spreads seem to have stagnated. You still get your incremental carry, your income, um, which is better, but you're, you're losing out. Um, you're not getting the price appreciation that we had before. It's, it's certainly gotten a little murkier going forward, and the Delta variant is probably the main reason at this point in time. Are you getting paid for the risk? Howard Marks um, told Eric Schatzker a couple weeks ago he thought, you know, 300 basis points sounds very little, but he wasn't as concerned about default risks and felt he was – being paid um, in line with the risk he was taking? Our, um, our high-yield group is a very strong group in the company with a lot of success in various strategies. And um, our, our multi-sector total return bond fund, uh, we sort of have a sleeve approach. So when we allocate money to high-yield, our high-yield guys manage it. And they tell me um, they, they still like the market. We still are overweight relative to our benchmarks. Well, the, the prospective return is obviously lower than what, what we've experienced in the last, you know, six to 12 months for sure. But the incidence of default is expected to be very, very low. Corporate profits just printed a lot of favorable news across a variety of sectors. Now, everybody says that's backward looking. Yeah, it, it is. But it's the most recent momentum that we built up economically heading into what could be a dicey late summer and fall as the Delta variant Clearly, is eroding on sentiment. Look at the Michigan consumer sentiment numbers. Um, I think corporations are now struggling with return to office, uh, in addition to some supply chain challenges and various echoes of the of the first wave of the pandemic that we're all still going through. Um, we're still optimistic that credit is is an avenue towards outperformance, uh, not the least of which a contributing factor. The Fed is still at zero, still buying bonds, suppressing returns on high quality fixed income, and that is helping to boost returns to low quality. We don't think a recession's in the offing. We might have a hiccup. It might be a little bit of a headwind compared to what we expected because of the Delta variant. But we still like credit on economic momentum and corporate corporate performance. I didn't I didn't uh, mean to get us off the Muni track. Paul is obsessed with Muni's. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm a, I love the New Jersey Muni's. We just can't get any yield as, as RJ knows. <laughs> How about inflation here, RJ? I mean, uh, that is a concern. It seemed to be more more of a concern for this market, say a month ago, and perhaps people getting more and more into that transitory camp. How do you guys think about that? Um, we've been firmly in the camp that it'll be less, it won't be as transitory as Chairman Powell 
expects. Um, I think even those at the Fed, I mean, you can sense over the last eight weeks there was a softening of the transitory um, desk beating. Uh, for a while there, it was going to be transitory, and it was almost like they wanted to guarantee it. Um, but if you look at the FOMC uh, speeches, if you look at the minutes, or not the minutes, excuse me, the, uh, the summary of economic projections and the risk around their inflation outlook was skewed to the upside, I think that it's pretty clear that the inflation story is still evolving uh, in such a way that we think that the Fed will prove to have overplayed the transitory card uh, and that some of this inflation is going to last and echo for a while. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we, we are still short duration, um, a little less so than we were, say, six to eight weeks ago, but we still believe that yields should be heading somewhat higher to compensate for the inflation risk that is clearly higher today than than it was expected to be, I think, on the part of the Fed and on the part of many in the markets. Right now, the market doesn't seem to care that much about that. Uh, the, you know, you've had some deceleration in the month-over-month prints. That, that's good. The second derivative went negative. That fits the Fed's framework of, of transitory. But we don't believe we're going to reset back towards the Fed's t- target rate of 2%. We're going to probably overshoot it more than they would like. Uh, and we think as a bond investor, you know, owning treasuries, for example, we, we should ask for a little bit more yield, and we think rates should be heading higher. The Delta variant and its impact on the growth trajectory, the obvious key risk. I do think the Afghanistan story is a very difficult story on many fronts, but I don't think it's an economic or a market problem. That's when is, you know, considering the ph- phenomenal history of the Michigan Wolverines, their performance over the past few years, over the last decade really, has been dismal. When are they going to field a really winning team? RJ, I just, you know, I have to warn you, uh, Matthew is from the state of Ohio. Oh, yeah. I I, I, you thought, sense I that? thought you came from. Are you a Ohio State fan? Is that what you're trying yes, to tell yes, me? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I like winning teams, you know? Well, you know, I, I, I used to bristle at these kinds of comments. I have to say that the, the, it's been a little humbling, the Michigan football performance of late. Um, I would say this. I think that you, you basically, when Harbaugh came in, there were expectations he was going to get us into the college football championship, you know, get into the playoff or how, whatever iteration on, of it yeah. that we're on. I'm, I'm going to have to cut you off. Well, here in the Bloomberg Radio Studio here, Bloomberg HQ in Europe, it got lots of the cable network video streams up and running at all times just to keep on top of the news and lots of images and video of chaotic uh, chaos going on in Afghanistan, particularly at the airport in Kabul right now. Let's get the latest from Bill Ferries. He's a national security team leader for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Bill, again, this is not the way I don't think anybody wanted it, it, it to go, but perhaps this is should not be that surprising. What is the latest from your reporting about what is going on in Afghanistan, particularly in Kabul? Well, as you mentioned, uh, there have been some scenes of real chaos and confusion at the airport as uh, people storm the runway, some trying to grab onto uh, U.S. military planes as they were taxiing. Um, and the AP is now reporting that there have been seven people killed uh, at the airport so far. Uh, I think uh, on the U.S. side, people are waiting to see how President Biden uh, finds a way to address this situation. The administration has pushed back a lot um, in terms of saying that, you know, they expected the Afghan military to put up much more of a fight against the Taliban. And 
even as uh, a lot of analysts thought that the Taliban might eventually take control. I don't think there was uh, anyone even uh, a week ago predicting that something would happen this quickly. That said, the U.S. has spent 20 years building up the Afghan military, so if anyone should mm. have known how prepared they were to fight or not, uh, you would think it would have been the U.S. commanders in the field. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say from reading through the Afghan paper, Afghanistan papers and reporting across various news organizations, um, it looks like the Taliban started to negotiate with Afghan army and police personnel at the beginning of the year or the end of last year. So the Taliban... Uh, already knew that they had these entry points, and um, a lot of these uh, Afghan officials weren't getting paid for the last six months or the last nine months. So clearly, um, you could see how their loyalty would weaken. What happens now? Um, in terms of getting people out, I, I know the president's um, team said they're going to send what five thousand troops to the U.S. Uh, to, to the uh, Kabul airport. Um, is that still the case? And how are they planning on who are they planning on taking out? Well, right. It's actually up to 6,000 now that they said will be in place by, uh, by at some point tomorrow on Tuesday. Uh, and their job is to secure some sort of a perimeter around the airport. And uh, they still have diplomats. They still have uh, Afghan translators and other aides that they are rushing out. Uh, it's not just the U.S. The U.K. is also running flights in and out of Kabul. Uh, the big the big question, and I think the problem uh, that the U.S. has here is that if, you know, you're someone who's trying to get out, whether you, you might be an Afghan translator who uh, worked with NATO forces for years, but in a more remote province, you would have to get yourself to Kabul at this point. There are no exit points um, in Afghanistan uh, except the airport. If you try to cross the land border, you're going through Taliban checkpoints at that, at that stage. So I think uh, that's going to be the question is how well can U.S. and allies get um, their own people and their aides out. And then, of course, what happens uh, to, uh, for instance, women and, and, uh, and, and children's rights in the country? We, uh, we all remember what that was like under the Taliban, and there's already reports um, that of human rights abuses in some of these Taliban-controlled areas. The U.N. Security Council is having an emergency session on that issue right now, uh, and that's going to be one of the bigger questions in the days ahead. It's so damaging to the U.S. credibility, right, to have um, U.S. forces so publicly abandon these people who put their trust in United States military and uh, just really leave them hanging. How how does a president who wanted to telegraph the message, America's back to work with the world, how does he handle that? Without a doubt, it's it's perhaps the biggest crisis that Joe Biden has faced since he took office. He ran as a candidate in part on his, you know, three decades of experience on the on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, his time as a vice president, um, and, you know, really as a foreign policy expert. And, again, I think there were a lot of people who would have said, yes, the Taliban will eventually win this, uh, but nobody thought it would happen this, uh, this quickly. And it makes the administration look like it didn't really have a plan for how to secure the withdrawal uh, to get its allies out in time. We have 6,000 troops going into the airport by tomorrow. That's more troops than we've had for four or five years uh, in Afghanistan. So, you know, uh, a few weeks, uh, last month, President Biden was saying there was no way we would see this kind of a situation. Uh, We have it uh, faster than anyone expected. 
Bill, I guess what's going through my Twitter feed at the moment as it relates to Afghanistan uh, is the lack of communication from the White House, particularly from the president. What do we know about when he will address this issue publicly? We, uh, his national security advisor this morning said that he will address it soon. We know he's been up at Camp David. I think uh, we're all looking to see whether uh, he, he tries to give a speech to the nation from there, whether he comes back to Washington. Uh, we have not seen a lot of his uh, top advisors. It was his national security uh, advisor who was on TV this morning, uh, but we haven't, you know, except for the Sunday shows, we haven't seen a lot of uh, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, or Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense. They've got a lot to work on, of course, but I think um, you would expect to see them putting their face forward a lot more in the coming hours. And Tony Blinken um, said he considers the administration considered the mission in Afghanistan a success going after those who harbored 9-11 terrorists. What are the chances that the Taliban harbors terrorists again or that the vacuum is filled with, you know, um, Chinese or Iranian power? I think for sure you're going to see foreign powers taking a stronger interest. I mean, when you look at who borders Afghanistan, just starting with uh, China and Russia, they uh, first of all, they have their own security concerns. Um, there were reports that China had beefed up its military presence a little bit on its uh, shared border. Uh, and for sure, Pakistan, of course, uh, which is a close ally of China, is going to uh, be even more involved than it, than it already has been. Uh, the Taliban, their comments so far have been a little bit more moderate. Um, they've been saying that they want to have some sort of a discussion uh, about the political future of the country. Uh, but I think realistically, uh, people are not going to put a lot of stock on that. Uh, actions will speak much louder than words. And, uh, and, and the Taliban have a history of, of, uh, of running you know, what was uh, internationally condemned as a, as a, as a fairly brutal uh, regime uh, in, when it held power in the late 1990s. All right. It's just a horrible um, situation. And uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of time for blame to go around after. But it would be uh, you hope that American, British, um, German, French forces can get in there and save the people that put their trust into um, the allied forces. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Bill Ferries is national security team leader for us here at Bloomberg News, joining us out of Washington, D.C., talking about the um, still developing but just tragic, tragic situation, uh, the images of people jumping on to Air Force planes and trying to ride on the outside of the aircraft are really horrifying. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.